Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 11, Galatians chapter 2. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined in in, in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking, in, seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What a great portion of scripture that is for us to, today. Someone once said that there are two kinds of people who work with electricity. One is an electrician and the other is a fool. I am not an electrician by any stretch of the occupation. But I know a little bit about electricity. Because when I was younger and a lot thinner, I was the one that had to crawl into attics for different people. And pull the wires into the house and then help them install the electrical boxes and light switches where I was told to under the guidance of the gentleman I would be working with that was in our church. Most of us, I think, that we are aware that our homes are wired for both 110 amps and 220 amps. Our small appliances, our lights, our ceiling fans, all of the electronics we have today run on that 110 amp. But larger units like our air conditioners, our stove, the clothes dryer, our, those are wired for the 220 amps. They produce more energy and they need more power. The 110 plugs and the 220 plugs even look differently so we can't accidentally plug the 110 appliance into a 220 outlet here in the United States. But if we could, I'm sure that whatever we would plug into a 220 that wasn't actually supposed to, it would burn up very quickly. 
I've read recently that many international hotels are wired through two, for 220, and the plugs look the same as a 110 plug. So in my crazy mind, I have to wonder, what would happen? What would happen if we plugged a 110 amp blow dryer into a 220 amp outlet in one of these hotels? I would like to try that. I would. I just would, because that's just me. But I bet that motor would sound like a turbocharged air dryer for a few seconds. And then it would probably start smoking a lot and fry everything inside of that blow dryer. But if we are able to plug our 220 dryers into a 120 outlet there, we would get only one quarter of the output. It would be a week and unpowered. Our clothes would take very long to dry in that dryer if they would dry at all. And maybe you're wondering, why is Pastor talking about electricity? Is there something spiritual about a 110 outlet and a 220 outlet? Let me assure you this morning, yes, there is a spiritual parable about a 110 amp and a 220 amp for us this morning. And here it is. Any person who tries to live the life of a follower of Jesus today on his or her own strength is either like a burned out hair dryer or an underpowered dryer. They move ahead at a frantic pace for a short burst of time and then they quickly burn out. Or they just suffer from a lack of power and they never achieve God's intended purpose for them. But I am here to tell us this morning that God has wired each one of us, not for 110, but for 220. There was that verse that we just read that contains a secret for living the life as a follower of Jesus in 220. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christopher Columbus did not invent the United States of America. However, he did discover it. America was here all along. He just ran into it on his way to India. And in my experience, and I'm sure yours too, in this life as a follower of Jesus, there's a lot of wonderful discoveries to find. I remember when I first discovered there was a God who created the universe. That, 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 that same God created the universe loves me so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for me. I remember when I discovered to put my hope and my trust in Jesus and all my sins would be forgiven and I would have an eternal home in heaven. That's pretty amazing discoveries to find, isn't it? But I remember when I was in my dorm room at Reedley College one evening, I discovered that being a follower of Jesus is not me trying to imitate Jesus. But it is Jesus living in me and wants to live his life through me. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, when Christians say Christ is in them, they do not mean simply something mental or moral. This is not a simply a way of saying that they are thinking about Christ or copying him. They mean that Christ is actually operating 
through that. So over the next few moments, I want us to dissect this 20th amazing verse here in Galatians chapter 2. And then let's see how we can apply it to our lives. First, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is the executed life. Two friends were talking one day and one said, have you seen Tony lately? I've been looking high and low for him and I can't find him. The friend said, well, those are the only two places to look because Tony died last month. You'll get that about 2 o'clock this afternoon. Okay. Explain it to Sharon then later this afternoon, okay? Paul wrote that in Christ we died. Obviously, we can look around this morning and know that we haven't died physically. We have died to self and to sin when we are in Christ. It seems to me as I look around that we have made the cross today a shiny and a nice religious symbol. We wear crosses as necklaces or tattoos or earrings or stickers on our car and other things. But honestly, the cross was and always will be used as a way of execution. It was a lethal injection during the time of Jesus and when Paul wrote this to the church in Galatia. At the beginning of verse 20, Paul doesn't say, I will be crucified, or I am being crucified. It was already something that had already happened. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. At a murder scene, the detectives try to determine the time of death at that scene. And Paul is saying that our time of death was 2,000 plus years ago when Jesus died on that old rugged cross. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Are you aware this morning that a dead man isn't interested in the things of this world? I wonder if I had a corpse up here on the platform and I propped him up against the wall over here and asked him if he wanted a million dollars. What do you think his answer would be? He won't even give us an answer. We could parade all the temptations that we face in front of him, all the sex, all the alcohol, all the drugs, the lying, the gossiping, the cheating, the stealing, and he wouldn't even bat an eye at him. Why? Because he's dead to the temptations of sin. For we cannot scare a dead man. But we this morning still have a physical life. But when it comes to sin's power over us, according to what Paul is writing, we are dead to the sins that drive to overpower us because our sin nature has been crucified with Jesus. Yet we still live in this world, but we can't let the world live in us. We're like a boat in the water. The boat is in the water and there's a lot of water that gets in the boat and it's going to sink. We must not allow the water to get into our boats, into our lives. Paul says in Romans 6 that we are to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Can we say this morning that no matter what's going on in our lives today, that we are crucified with Christ? Can we say that we are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ? When we read about Paul's life, we read that he faced many dangers, but we don't see that he minded that he faced those dangers either. Because remember, you can't hurt a dead man. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. When missionary James Calvert first approached the Fiji Islands in 1838, the Fiji Islands were populated by the cannibals and the captain of the ship begged James and those that were with him to turn around, go back home, be safe. He said, if you go, you and all those with you will die at the hands of those savages. James said, we all died before we left home. He landed and led thousands of those on those Fiji Islands to faith in Jesus. For the secret to living as a follower of Jesus is dying to self and to sin. There was a sign in the Detroit, Michigan dry cleaning business says, we die to live. We live to die. The more we die, the more we live. And the more we live, the more we die. The second part of this verse says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The exchanged life. Five-year-old Xavier had gotten, was going to the doctor because he had the flu. The doctor examined Xavier's ears and to make him feel relaxed, the doctor said, will I find Big Bird in the ear? Xavier said no. Before examining his throat, the doctor asked, will I find the cookie monster in there? Xavier at this time is getting a little impatient with the doctor. And he says no with a little sterner voice. The doctor placed his stethoscope on Xavier's chest and asked, and asked, will I find Barney in there? Xavier looked at the doctor again and said, no, Jesus is in my heart, but Barney is on my underwear. <laughs> Xavier was right. Jesus can and will live in our hearts when we choose to allow him to. The exchange life. Here in verse 20, we see that Paul uses the words I and me seven times. It seems here that Paul had an eye problem and it had nothing to do with his vision. I think that we all tend to struggle with the same eye problem that Paul had. The big eye always wants to be in control of our lives. Here's a test. What's the middle letter in the word sin? can't hear you. Thank you. What's the middle letter of the word pride? What's the middle letter of the word guilt? How do you spell guilt, guys? I is the middle letter. Okay. So you see the central problem of sin, pride, and guilt is I. For I is constantly trying to climb back onto the throne of our hearts and minds and take Jesus off. But we need to learn and say together, Christ lives in me. 
Christ with you is good and Christ for you is fine and Christ beside you is comforting. But Christ in you changes everything. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary in China. He struggled for years to do the work that God had called him to do but found nothing but failure. Then he discovered the key of death to self and the power of the indwelling Jesus in his life. He exchanged his weakness for the strength of Jesus. And when he did, God began to do some amazing things through Hudson Taylor. He spent 51 years of his life in China reaching people for Jesus. The last time Hudson Taylor was in China, there were 18,000 believers. 125 schools had been started in some of those churches. And 59 churches were started. And he sent out 102 missionaries to other parts of the world. Now mind you, this was in the mid-1800s when Hudson Taylor was in China. Today in China, there are more than 31 million people who call themselves followers of Jesus. And there are numerous schools and churches because there have been people like Hudson Taylor who have been called by God to minister in other parts of the world. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us changes us. Let me illustrate it with this cup of water right here. Just a regular cup of water. Regular tea bag. But when I put the tea bag into the water, it will change the color and it will change the nature of the water. For the water to exist now is for the tea to exist. If the water can talk, it would say, it is no longer I, the water, but tea lives in me. Not many people drink just hot water. There's not much taste to it. But when we turn water into tea, it becomes a delicious drink. The tea adds value, and it's the same as a true follower of Jesus. Jesus in us. Changes us. He changes our nature. He changes our life from being bland and boring to be exciting, to be thrilling for Him. Unfortunately, we tend to keep that I alive. And we say, I'm going to do the very best that I can for Jesus. No, church, we must allow the big I to die today. Let me ask another simple question this morning. Who can live the life of a follower of Jesus better? You and I or Jesus himself? Obviously, Jesus can do it better than you and I. Amen? So then why are we still trying to let I do it? Adrian Rogers once wrote, on the day you quit trying to live the Christian life, then you will finally give him the freedom to live out in you what is so easily and so simple for him to do. Anybody like to go shopping? I know there's some who like to shop. 
And I'm sure some of you who like to shop are also good at making exchanges because maybe you bought something you didn't, you thought you liked in that life, but you get it home and the light's different and it doesn't look the same or it doesn't fit like you thought it would or, and all of a sudden you need to take it back to the store and exchange it. And you don't mind standing in those lines to exchange it. But can you imagine getting in that line in the customer service line at that store with a small toy plastic cell phone. And when you get to the counter, you tell them that you're going to exchange this toy cell phone for the latest and greatest cell phone on the market. That person on the other side of the counter is probably going to look at you like you're crazy and tell you that you can't do that, or you can do that if you pay another couple hundred dollars. But what if you could make this even exchange with the two cell phones, the plastic one and the latest and greatest? Would you take advantage of that exchange? Of course we would do that. Well, that's what the exchange life with Jesus is all about. It's the exchange life we get to receive his strength for our weaknesses, our ignorance for his wisdom our prejudice for His love, our anger for His gentleness, our inability for His ability, our sinful life for a victorious life. Augustine was one of the leading pastors in the early church. He grew up living a wild life as a young man with no regard for sin or righteousness. He was known for his wild conduct with the women in his city. His godly mother constantly prayed First conversion. And soon Augustine gave his life to Jesus as a young man. He was concerned about how he would react when he was confronted with some of the women who had been a part of his wild past. And one day he was walking down the street in Milan, Italy. And one of the women from his past saw him and greeted him. And Augustine ignored her. And he kept on walking. She cried out, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. But Augustine replied as he walked away, Yes, I know who you are, but it is no longer I. It is no longer I. So this great verse here in Galatians 2 begins with an execution. Then it leads to an exchange, and then it leads to the third part of this verse where it says, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is the energized Life. There's a big difference between a person living a good life and a person who has surrendered themselves to the goodness and the love of God. The truth is that we don't enough, we don't possess enough power or energy to live a good moral life on our own today. One of the most famous early Americans was Benjamin Franklin. We all know him as one of our founding fathers who was instrumental in winning America's independence and framing our Constitution. But did you also know that he was an inventor as well? He didn't invent electricity, but he did invent the lightning rod. His other invention included the bifocals and the swim fins that we use in the pools and the Franklin stove. And maybe you're aware of those inventions, but you might not be aware 
that Benjamin Franklin even invented his own personal religion. Benjamin Franklin was raised in a Puritan Presbyterian family and was baptized at an early age. And based upon his writings, it's clear that he was a God-fearing man. But somewhere in his adult years, he stopped going to church. And he began to view Jesus as a good moral teacher, just like Socrates was. He didn't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And when Benjamin Franklin was a young adult, he established his own personal religion. And in his autobiography, he writes this. It was about this time, at the age of 20, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. As I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong. I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. Benjamin Franklin tried to live by 13 moral qualities. He called these his moral habitudes, a cross between a habit and an attitude. They included temperance, silence, order, resolution, being frugal, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. Franklin took his, took his personal religion seriously, for he even had a book that he carried with him wherever he went, and had these 13 moral qualities written down on the left side of the page. And then he had seven columns for the seven days in the week. And in the, when the evening came, he would judge himself, and if he failed or needed improvement, he would make a mark in that column. Each week he would erase the marks and start all over again. He soon found that there were so many marks that erasing them tore a hole in the page. So he would have to get a new book and start all over. Later in life, when he wrote his autobiography, he reflected on the failure of his system. He wrote, I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but I fell far short of it. Benjamin Franklin was a wise and powerful individual, but he admitted he failed to live a life of perfect moral purity. He sure could have saved himself a whole lot of frustration and paper. If you would have read and applied to his life, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Instead of inventing 13 moral habitudes, we already have a list that has been given to each one of us. We can find it in Galatians chapter 5, and it mentions nine character qualities of a true follower of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But we don't, So we don't have to create a checklist and every day try to live up to these Nine character qualities, for they are simply nine words that describe the personality of Jesus. And when we allow Jesus to live in us, he energizes those qualities in our lives every day. Paul identified his source of energy when he writes in Colossians chapter 1. 
He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I have my baseball glove here. Imagine my baseball glove is my life. It's empty and it's powerless. I could preach to this glove and say, glove, get up. Pick up the cup on the table. The Bible says so. Thou shalt pick up that cup. But all this poor blood can say is I'm sorry, I can't. For that's all you expect of us, right, God? That we try our best. But Jesus says, to us. There's a better way. He said, I came to live inside of you. And what you could never do, I can and will through you. <laughs> Jesus, I'm trying to love that mean person, but you know it's hard. And Jesus says, let me love that person through you. It's not hard for me to love them. Lord, I'm trying to forgive that person who did that thing to me that hurts so much. But I just can't, Lord. Jesus says, I can forgive that person through you. If you will allow me to. My favorite part of Galatians 2.20 is the last part that says what Jesus did for us and why he did it. Paul wrote, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Noel Bose once interviewed famous theologian Karl Barth and asked him what the most profound theological thought he had ever encountered was. As Barth thought for a moment, Noel was ready with his pen to take down his profound answer. After a few moments, Barth said, I learned at the knee of my mother the most profound theological truth I have ever encountered is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Judd Wilhite once said that in every person's heart there is a throne and there's a cross. When we are on the cross, then Jesus is on the throne. But when we are on the throne, then Jesus is alone on the cross. Robbie Zacharias was once asked what his secret to being used by God was. He said that every morning during his quiet time, he considered the chair he was sitting in to be an electric chair. For every morning he pushed that Galatians 2.20 button and Galatians 2.20 volts began to surge through his selfish nature. He said, I'm a dead man, but Christ lives in me. Zacharias said, once I begin to understand that Jesus lives in me and wants to love people through me and forgive people through me and encourage people through me, it made a huge difference in my life and in my ministry. Instead of trying to imitate the life of Jesus, 
which I found to be impossible. He said, I started learning to simply abide in Jesus. He said, I'm still learning after all these years, and there are many times when I try and operate on my own strength and my own power. But if I ever have been a blessing to anyone, by what I've said or what I've done, that was not me. That was Christ in me. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Have you allowed the truth of I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you allowed this truth to change your life? I'm going to ask Lily if she would make her way to the piano. I don't know about you this morning, where you are at. But I can't live this life that I live without Jesus being in me. We must today have Jesus in us. And we must be in Him. For when Jesus is in us and walking with us. I don't know about you, but I need Him holding my hand and reigning in me.